0: All right. So last week we began the book of Philippians, which I like to frame it as a real-life testimony. Sometimes we look at the Bible and it's just like, oh man, those those are so those people are so heroic. They're not like us. That's the wrong way to read the Bible. <laughs> the Bible is full of normal people who've got struggles, who are messed up, who on their own strength are going to make it as big a mess of life as we do. <laughs> We're all, it's all the same. The idea is Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the only one that's got it all together. And the same Jesus who transformed them into truly heroic people is right here with us, in us, and wanting to do the same. So, when we look at a letter from a guy like Paul in prison, it's really important to see this is just a normal guy that's being transformed by a supernaturally good God. So, this is a real life testimony as we read the book of Philippians as he's writing from prison. And to be honest, that's why we're going through the prison letters of Paul right now is because in our world, we kind of, some of us, a lot of us kind of feel like we're kind of in a, in a pseudo prison, a lockdown that we don't want to be in, that we feel is unjust, that's kind of really cramping our style of how to live. And so there's some, there are some parallels of when, when you're kind of stuck in some places that you don't want to be, how do you respond and can you still produce good fruit? And like we used the analogy last week, when you get squeezed, what comes out? Is it Jesus? Because if we can find a way to get dependent on God like Paul is, then Jesus can come out no matter what the circumstances. And that's one of the greatest hopes of the Christian life is that circumstances don't have to rule the fruit that comes out of us. It's actually quite the opposite. It's the whole testimony of all these people is it's in spite of the circumstances that are bad and they're getting squeezed, incredible fruit is coming out. And that's because of the power of God in and through them. And so Paul, in prison, is getting squeezed, yet he has the astounding, true testimony that he presently has joy and hope because knowing Jesus is, quote, far better than anything that prison can take away. Philippians 1.23. He went so far to even say, my desire is to depart this life and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. So he's even saying, so I'm going to sacrifice for you. And As we move into chapter 2, Paul's essentially going to be sharing the secret to having this type of relationship with God. And, of course, it's not going to all be explained in, in one chapter, one message. But he's going to share one of the, the key and core secrets, if you will, that he doesn't want to be a secret, of how does he have such a powerful, deep, real relationship with God, hope, joy, in the middle of prison. So if you want to put it into a question, it would be, how do we experience the depth of life with Christ that's far better than anything else. So with that question in mind, Paul goes into chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, let's pause right there, (laughs) any encouragement in Christ, any, 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 I mean, he's trying to like whittle down to basically like, in other words, if there's anything real in your walk with God and you want more, then listen up. And he goes on to say, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So he uses four parallel synonyms to say, I need you guys. Here's the secret sauce, if you will. There is a mindset that will change everything. The same mind, the same love, full accord, one mind. These kind of four synonyms he just throws in a one sentence for this unified mindset that will change everything in life. There is a mindset, and that's a key word. I mean, Paul uses it, mind, 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 one accord. That full accord literally means of one mind (laughs) or of the same mission. So there is a mindset that Paul is thinking about, talking about, that is core to the Christian, to the life with Christ that Paul lives, that he's wanting to share this good news. How is he having such great fruit in prison? And he goes on to say, 1-3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So he starts right off with, what is this mindset not like? And sometimes that's helpful. When you're trying to figure out what something is, you're trying to understand it, it's good to contrast it with what it's not. So he actually starts there. What this mindset is not like is selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition has this sense of a strong drive for personal success without moral inhibitions. And that's where it gets nasty. Where there's no, there's no absolutes of right and wrong that are guiding any type of success. I mean, you can have lots in the Bible that talk about Ways that we can pursue God that you could say, hey, this makes you have a successful life. Jesus says, I want you to have an abundant life in every way. So we have to be nuanced in our thinking. This is not saying God wants you to just be an abject failure in everything you do, and now you know God's at work. (laughs) No. But a, a selfish ambition where you throw off all morality because you're so ambitious about just achieving whatever you want. That's what he's talking about. And then conceit is this sense of vanity, prideful vanity. He's going to essentially say these are diametrically opposed to this mindset of walking in life with Christ that I'm about to share with you. I would even go so far to say diabolically opposed. Like if you're walking in selfish ambition and vain conceit, you are not going to be able to walk in the way that he's going to describe. Because one is going to be honoring the kingdom of darkness and opening doors in your life to the kingdom of darkness, and the other is going to be walking with Jesus to see the kingdom of God advance. So they are not friends. And that's why Paul comes out strong at the beginning, saying this is what it's not, and we got to get rid of it. Yet it's, it, I mean, come on, this is a challenge. In the world's eyes, selfish ambition, conceit, power, fame, title, prestige, are those not normal if not encouraged? Yes, <laughs> to both normal and encouraged. I mean, this one one of the easiest possible things to do would be take to look for selfish ambition, conceit, power, fame, title, celebrity, and look at it around and say, where can we find this? Is it, is it? <laughs> It's there. But Paul has this core mindset that says, Christianity, listen to what he says, has nothing to do with these things, nothing to do with these motivations. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. Nothing. That means we're going to have to guard against that. Do nothing with that motivation it's completely opposed to seeing God work in you and through you. So that's where I get that strong language of man that's going to be diametrically if not diabolically opposed to what God wants to do because he's about to show us this way to walk with Jesus but before that he says but you got to know you got to you do nothing from this motivation of selfish ambition and conceit that will unplug you from this way of walking with Jesus that he's about to describe. So let's get into it. In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, what does this mindset look like? Count others as more significant wow and yourself let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others so paul's calling for this transformation if you will on that you could kind of imagine a spectrum on one end is just this self preservation from self aggrandizement through ambition and conceit i just want me just to get bigger and bigger and bigger to this way other end of the spectrum, no, actually it's self-sacrifice for the good of others. Those are two wildly different ways to live. And he summarizes it in this phrase of humility. Which quite simply and interestingly is summarized by Paul in this context as sacrifice for the good of others, which is interesting because if I just asked you, hey, define humility, would that be the the definition? Sacrifice or self-sacrifice for the good of others. But in this context, it's clearly how Paul wants to define it. In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So clearly, humility, what he wants us to grab onto it, as at least a part or a key summarization or definition, is sacrifice for the good of others. And he goes on it now gets more explicit of this mindset. So have, verse five, so have this mind or this mindset among yourselves, this mindset of humility. That's the, that's the secret sauce. That's where he's wanting to go. If you have anything real in your life with God and you want more, have this mindset of humility, sacrifice for others, which is yours in Christ. I love that phrase, which is yours in christ meaning if you're in christ it's already yours there's already a new creation inside of you in christ where he dwells in you you're already humble maybe you need to turn to your neighbor in case they're wondering let them know i'm already humble (laughs) it's already in me it's in the bible have this mindset among yourselves which is already yours in christ it might be a little hidden, <laughs> which is okay. We're all growing. But I like this, though. I mean, this, this is part of that good news is it's, it's already in you. As 1 Peter says, we already have everything we need for life and godliness. Godliness, to be like God. I mean, hello. You already have, we already have everything we need for life and godliness. You already have it. If you're in Christ, it's in you. So we might have some excavating to do. We do. We all do. But it's good to know it's already in me through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. That's a different mindset. So he's going to go on now and give a very famous passage appropriately of the best example of the humility that he has in mind that the universe has ever seen found in Christ himself. Have this mindset, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, this mind of humility, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, the literal translation is slave, Being born in the likeness of humanity, the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But this passage is one of what scholars note as like one of the first Christian hymns. The way that it's written in the Greek, it was like, whoa, this is like a hymn. This is a song. This 5 through 11 is a song, one of the earliest Christian songs ever. I mean, there were songs before Bethel got writing. I mean, I don't know if that's like a wake-up call to anybody, but Christians sing. They like to sing. Sorry, little joke. This is cool, though. This is the earliest hymn in the Bible in post-resurrection Jesus. I mean, the psalms are all songs, so yes, worship and music is part of the way God's wired us to connect with him. But this is one of the earliest. They call it the Christ hymn, where they would just sing about, wow, Christ's example. So this should be an incredibly familiar passage to us because it's so core who Jesus is, the life that he is, the the life that he lived, the essence of, of his life on earth. What was he doing? What was he modeling that were to take from his life and say, that's for me too. That's what Paul's getting at. Have this mind in you. So this is not just for Jesus. Oh, he did, it was one of those savior things. That's just for Jesus. Nope. Have this mind in you. Paul says, which is yours in Christ. And he goes on. Some of these descriptions are, when you think about Jesus and the reality of what we believe, who he is, he is God. He is the eternal son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity. As, we, as the creeds say, and we believe with all our hearts, and the Bible's very clear. He's the one who created everything, as we looked at in, in Colossians chapter 1 all things are held together by his hand at all moments in time. And yet, what does it say? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The literal meaning of that is held onto. So in other words, he let go at the right time in accordance with the the agreed-upon mission that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were in complete unity about from before the creation of time, as Ephesians 1 says, that we'll look at on Monday. It was a predestined plan. It wasn't a surprise. We didn't catch God by surprise when we messed things up. In case anybody was wondering, he's like, oh, shoot, now what do we do? Jesus is like, okay, me. No. So He's God. But at the right time, I mean, we have to let it sink in. This was a hellish sacrifice. He, no question, went through hell on our behalf, took the full wrath of God and punishment of sin. So he had to let go of his position, his title and authority, and humble himself, be obedient to even death, death on a cross. I mean, you talk about letting go of, the, of what you are worthy of. That's part of the humility. Well, I might be worthy of this. There are times when God calls you and me, like Jesus, let go of it. Let go of your prestige. Let go of your power. Let go of your title. You might be worthy of it, but let go of it. And Jesus did that in the ultimate way. He didn't grasp it. Meaning he just, when God and the Father and the Son and the Spirit knew this was what needed to happen, he was willing to let go of his rightful power, prestige, title in order to take the form of humanity, to suffer even death on a cross. That's the sacrifice for the good of others. So this little tiny three verses, if you will, should be Our clear definition of the mind of Christ, the mindset of Christ that is meant to be our mindset to define how we live. I mean, Paul is talking some incredibly broad terms. Like, this should be the essence of how we live. Because Paul's coming right out of chapter one saying, man, knowing Jesus is far better than anything else. So I'm going to share the secret here. If you have any encouragement in being in Christ, You've got to live this mindset. If anything real, if anything is real in your walk with God and you want more, you've got to grab onto this mindset. So this should be our challenging method of, in our minds, in our hearts, in our mindset, how do we live? What's the essence of it, the core of it, to see the kingdom of God advance in us and then through us? And the prime example that we can always and should keep returning to is this humility found in Christ, who let go of position and title, even though he was worthy, emptied himself, it says, and ultimately sacrificed himself for the good of others. That's the framework of kingdom advancing that Paul wants to become a normal mindset. To see the kingdom advance requires humility, which is sacrificing for the sake of others. And Paul goes on in the rest of the chapter to give three examples and a challenge of this humility, sacrificing for others as the way that the kingdom advances. He gives three examples, and then he challenges us. So let's look at it. Paul in all humility gives himself as the first example. <laughs> That's funny. It's like Moses at the end of Exodus as Moses is the author. It says Moses was the meekest man on the earth and he went to be with the Lord. I, I don't know, it just got a little bit of a ring to it, right? I mean, if you're writing an autobiography and you kind of close up and it's on humility and you say, you know, you know, you know, I'm here end of my book guys and you know, and Casey was the meekest man on the earth and it's like <laughs> Hmm, that's an autobiography. I mean, that's a little bit interesting. But hey, Paul does it too. So apparently, if you're actually humble, you can tell people you're humble. (laughs) Philippians 2, 17 and 18. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul, right after this teaching on humility is sacrificing for the good of others, you've got to grab onto this mindset. Jesus is the ultimate example of it. Paul goes on to say, consciously, I'm willing to, quote, be poured out as a drink offering, that's sacrifice, poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I mean, that is a provocative level of humility, a Christ-like level of humility. He's saying, whatever it takes, I am willing to sacrifice for your good. Even if my life needs to be poured out as an offering for your good, I'm willing to do it. And then he goes on to give the example of Timothy and how Timothy, his, you know, one of his fellow workers, is one of his protégés, he did this. In verses 19 to 22, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be, listen, genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests hear it not those of jesus christ but you know timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel so paul not coincidentally uses some of that exact language that he uses in the early verses in chapter two about how you how do you describe humility well you don't seek your own interests but you're willing to sacrifice for the sake of others exactly the same language He is concerned for your welfare, not like those others who seek their own interests. So he's saying, humility is absolutely core to the Christian life, to walking with Jesus, to seeing the kingdom advance. And by the way, I'm sending you Timothy, and he's got it. He knows this heart. He's willing to sacrifice for you, so you can trust him. And then he goes on, same chapter. It's like he's trying to do this on purpose. Epaphrodites did this same thing. Verses 25 to 30. I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. just want to pause there real quick. A chapter later, Paul's going to talk about how when we fix our minds on Christ Jesus and trust him, then the peace of God will come upon us, and it surpasses understanding, so we'll have no anxiety. One chapter prior, Paul confesses that he has anxiety. It's just good to know. The heroes have victory through Christ. On their own, they struggle like the rest of us. Verse 29 So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, example of humility, sacrifice for the good of others. Epaphroditus nearly died for you, he nearly died for the work of Christ, he risked his life for the ministry. So you see the theme here? Got to have humility. Sacrifices for others. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Timothy did it. Epaphroditus did it. This is clear. This is the way of Jesus to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. For the good of others to see the cause of Christ advance. I want to take us to a quick couple uh, historical examples. I always love trying to see how, what does this look like in present times? What does this look like outside of the Bible? And so, two examples for today. One is going to come out of a book called Humility. That, ironically, I was given for Christmas by one of you all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Laura and Alexia (laughs) and my wife as I opened it made really clear (laughs) hey (laughs) I think they're you know aware you need a dose of this (laughs) it's not why they gave it to me it's because (laughs) it says what's the the subtitle I lost it because I took the cover off it's like this the secret power in the history of America and they know that uh, you know I enjoy those things so here we go it's not for the other reasons George Washington has one of the most compelling real-life historical examples of how humility changed the world, changed our nation forever. In 1776, when, in December, when the Continental Army was struggling and it did not look hopeful that this declaration of independence from Britain was going to be successful. Congress did something radical. They decided to give dictatorial powers to Washington to consolidate power, consolidate decision making. You know, nothing gets, nothing held up in committees. You know, that whole democracy thing of. Voices and opinions, ah, oh, so exhausting, <laughs> like, right? So, it's not, but that was in the extreme circumstances Congress chose to do this as they very much we were aware of and appreciative of the Republic of Rome and how there was a couple times in the history of Rome where uh, the Congress dissolved their powers and gave dictatorial power to Caesars. That's where the word dictator comes from, and it actually wasn't uh, negative at the time. Dictator was the the Roman term for when uh, the congressional body or the republic, the representatives, the elected representatives chose. Because of this emergency situation, we need to give the power to the Caesar. So that happened in December of 1776 to George Washington. And Abigail Adams comments that if, quote, if he was really not one of the best-intentioned men in the world, he might be a very dangerous one. Because when you're granted authority, dictatorial authority, over an entire nation, who's going to give it back? You really going to give it back? History doesn't say so. I mean, you look... And, in fact, it was typically who became dictators, generals. Why? Well, because when an army wins a war, they are the most powerful group of people in the land, right? And you can look into the history books and say, what happens when armies win wars? The general of the army becomes a dictator. It's one of the most common repeated patterns in history. And in France with Napoleon... You got it in Greece with Alexander the Great. You got it in Rome with Caesar Augustus. I mean, it's over and over with some incredibly dark, dark examples as well. But if there is an all-out war and the army that wins is now the most powerful group around and they look to a general, that general can easily become the most powerful person, a dictator, and never give it back. So Washington was given these type of dictatorial powers. And shockingly, right after he won the first couple battles and it was safe, he gave it back in 1776. And then in 1777, when it got really scary again, Congress gave him dictatorial powers again. And shortly after, he gave it back. And then again, when they had finally, they had won... So, this is like after the Battle of York in, in 1781, and, and things are still very, very, very much hanging in the balance in this country. And the army is not getting paid because our country is broke. We don't have enough money. A, a, a restless, unpaid army with a general that they love, with a weak Congress, is a very dangerous combination, right? I mean, you have a recipe for dictatorship. So, in that moment, it's now around 1782, a, a band of generals, uh, not generals, what's kind of like the next level down, uh, colonels, a band of colonels from the army gets together and they talk. And they say, Congress isn't paying us. This whole new demo, you know, Democratic Republic thing is not working. Let's make Washington our king. And so they kind of form this you know, illegal underground uh, you know, camaraderie. They talk, and they ultimately send a letter to Washington where, in which they say, we want you to be king, and you've got our support. Do it. And General Washington has a response, but before that, I want to read a response from the British King George, King George III, who had just been defeated. Word, actually, through spies, got back to Britain that the colonels and the army want Washington to make himself king. And King George's response is this: thinking about the idea that that Washington might relinquish his military power, it's. King George III said, quote, if he does, he will be the greatest man in the world. Because he knows. Like, that, you don't do that. Nobody does that. Nobody does it. And Washington, in response to Colonel Lewis Nicola and the other colonels who had written him the letter proposing that he would become king, quote, let me conjure you then, I don't know what that means. If you have any regard for your country, concern for yourself or posterity, or even respect for me, then banish these thoughts from your mind and never communicate as from yourself or to anyone else a sentiment of the like nature. And what did Washington do to make clear his intentions? He retired. He stepped down. Not only did he not make himself king, he stepped down from his position as general of the army. And he wrote in his farewell letter, he closed it with a prayer that the citizens of this country would, quote, live in a spirit of subordination and obedience to the government and that God would, quote, dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, mind, mindset, mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. And without a humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Do you hear what he just did? With the opportunity to be made king of now this, you know, burgeoning, successful, powerful, nothing like this in kind of human history has ever, you know, taken place, and he can be made king of it all. Not only does he say no, but he writes a letter, he resigns, and he quotes the Bible in two places. He quotes Micah, that famous passage which says, he has shown you, oh man, what is good, what the Lord requires you. Do justice, love, kindness, walk humbly with your God. And then he goes on to say, our mindset should be the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, without, and without a humble imitation of whose example we will never hope to be a happy nation. That's Philippians 2. If you don't know, the, the divine author of our blessed religion is Jesus, And he has the characteristics of humility that Washington specifically says should be our mindset, our example. And Jesus' example of humility, if we don't follow him, our nation has no chance of being a happy nation. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Ah! And then he wrote one more letter. Now, this time it was to a church. In New York. And he says, he's in the, this is a retirement goodbye letter. If my humble exertions have been made in any degree subservient to the execution of divine purposes, meaning, if what I have done is in any way in accordance with God's will and what God wants to do in this nation, he says, a contemplation of the benediction of heaven on our righteous cause. The approbation of my virtuous countrymen and the testimony of my own conscience will be a sufficient reward and augment my felicity beyond anything which the world can bestow. And my cause is to, quote, establish civil and religious liberty. You talk about letting go, not grasping onto, letting go, saying no to, selfish ambition and conceit. What he's literally letting go of is being king of a new empire. And he says, I would much rather, I will be happy, I will be content to just know that I served God and extended his cause, his work in this nation. That's all I need to be more content. That will be sufficient reward and augment my felicity or happiness beyond anything that the world can bestow upon me. Meaning, It's more attractive to serve God and know in my heart that I served God and his will was done even a little bit through me than being king. That changed our nation forever. That's an example of Philippians 2 put into practice in his sphere of influence. We've all got spheres of influence. One other one. Dr. Martin Luther King, whom we honor tomorrow with a national holiday, he sacrificed to the point of death. And if you haven't read some of his last sermons, they are very interesting. He knew he was going to die. They're in the sermons. He spoke it. My time is close. I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to get to the, you know, the, the promised land. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen it. I'm not going to be able to go with you. I mean, what is he talking about? He knows. I, I don't know exactly how. I mean, he had found out that the FBI was wiretapping his home and threatening him and behind some of those death threats and all those things. So I'm sure that was a part of it. But shockingly, and this is what's shocking, shocking to me is even though he knew his time was coming, that he was going to make the ultimate sacrifice or he was going to be called to make the ultimate sacrifice for the good of others, it did not deter him. I mean, that's Paul saying, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering for you, I'm willing. That's Christ, obedient, letting go of heaven, letting go of all the power and prestige that he was worthy of, that it was his due, even to the point of death on the cross. And he said, I'm willing. And Dr. King has that same exact example. Given his conviction that his mission was from God, like Washington, there's that parallel, conviction. They're thoroughly biblical. They're quoting the Bible left and right. Convinced that in their context, in their sphere of influence in this nation, their mission was from God. And therefore, they were willing in humility to sacrifice for the good of others. And so we appropriately celebrate tomorrow that he ultimately chose to give up his life. Dr. King chose it for the good of many and the nation. And we'll close with where Paul takes this picture of humility, these examples of humility, He goes right after the explicit example of humility from Jesus to say, this is for your life too. It's for all of us. Philippians 2, 12 to 15. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or complaining and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So where this is in the chapter 12 to 15, this is immediately following the Christ example. So this is before Paul even gets into his own example or Timothy or Epaphroditus. This is immediately following the example of Christ. He says, so therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Included in our own salvation is this picture of humility. It's that much of the essence of what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus that Paul gives the example of Jesus and says, and so you got to work this out in your own life. It is part of your salvation. That's a little scary. Oh, yeah, Paul said, with fear and trembling. Yeah, that scares us. Because when we actually look in the mirror and, and, and look at Jesus' example and say, is that really what's in me? That might make you scared. But that might be a good thing. Because Paul's saying, this is part of real salvation. This is part of really... Jesus getting in there and transforming things, is this becomes a part of you. This becomes who you are. So he takes, he calls us to take a sober look. But he also says, take heart. Look, because God's at work within you. So that's 13. Even though it's absolutely part of salvation, and you might get a little scared looking at it in the face, don't worry, verse 13, for it's God who works in you. But to will and work for his good pleasure. So you're not alone. Don't worry. This is not like you got to look in the mirror and, oh And now God's like, ha-ha, you're on your own. No. The immediate encouragement is, but take heart. God is with you. It's already yours in Christ. He's working in you. And he'll continue to work. So you can do it in him. And then he goes on to say, and when that happens, here's what you'll see in your life. You'll be able to do things without Grainy, uh, graining. That's a new word. I don't like it. Exit out. You'll be able to do things without complaining or grumbling. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That's like the, the parallel antithesis of how we started this whole thing on humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, it gives all this awesome stuff about humility in Christ, and it's for you too, and work it out so that you can do all things without gra- complaining or grumbling. But do you see there that this is that way other end of the spectrum? From that just selfish self preservation to the self sacrifice, or do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, do everything without complaining or grumbling. What 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 do complaining and grumbling have to do with it? Because if that's a repeated pattern in your life, it's showing a lack of humility. Period. If you're constantly in all these fights, guess what? Paul says it's not them. Constantly complaining and nothing to be grateful for, no hope, no joy, no power. It's not the circumstances. But if we're humble, Paul's point is, those things, the constant complaining, grumbling, disputing, those will melt away. They will melt away in increasing measure. And and what does Paul say? In that, we will show ourselves to be children of God it's different than what the world has to offer it's different than what the world does it's different than what we can do on our own strength so you will shine in a crooked and twisted world and so all these great examples they show us whether it's Washington or Dr. King Paul Timothy Epaphroditus even Jesus they lived this out in their own context. And that's what's key. Whether it's you know a small group of people or a whole nation. Whether it's in the public sphere or whether it's just in your home. When there's a question of who's gonna do the dishes right now. I'm serious. This is the I think on, honestly, some of the, the daily sacrifices are much bigger and harder than sometimes the biggest one. So we all have the challenge to embrace that humility as the core way of life that we carry with us, whether it's with our kids, with our spouses, with our family in the tiny day-to-day in our home, grind it out. Am I willing to sacrifice for their good? And then into whatever increased larger spheres of influence God God gives you. It's all the same to God. And so we close in just with great joy <laughs> that we don't have to let the lie that the world says selfish ambition and conceit are the only way to success. That's a lie. In the survival of the fittest mindset, yeah, they advance agendas, but they don't advance God's kingdom, not in us and not through us. So when we feel it, we just have to say no. Like the great examples we've seen in God's word or in Dr. King or in Washington, where it's just, I could be king right now, but no. Whew whether it's doing dishes or way out there, Lord, help me have that kind of mindset. That my felicity, the greatest joy I could have is just knowing that I'm walking with you, doing your will to see your kingdom advance. And that brings greater joy than anything the world has to offer. So let's pray on that. Heavenly I will sing a new song I will sing a Dancing new dance like David.